Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, An Anchor for the Soul, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. Here's Pastor Nick. Lazarus died right before he got there, and the sister Martha comes and tells Jesus, our brother just died. And it says there, it was so surprising, it says that Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's John eleven thirty five. It says, Jesus wept. Two words. Now here's what's so weird about that though, that just a few minutes later, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus back to life. And it makes you wonder, you know, if Jesus knew that he's going to raise this guy back to life, back from the dead, then why is he crying? Why is he upset? I mean, if my car breaks down, but I know exactly how to fix it, and I can just fix it real quick, then I don't get that upset. I don't fall into despair. I don't don't freak out about it. It tells us in a few minutes, though, or a few verses later in verse 38, it says that Jesus continued or once again groaned within himself. And that's an interesting phrase. And that phrase means to be upset, and it actually means to be fuming with anger. To be fuming with anger. And what that means is that when Jesus was weeping, he wasn't just, wasn't just quiet, you know, one tear running down the face. No, he was actually angry crying. Like if you've ever done that or seen somebody do that, that's what Jesus was doing. He was so angry that he was emotional and he was weeping, but he was angry. So here's Jesus, and the Bible tells us that all things were created by him. There's nothing that was created that was not made through him. Together with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus, in the beginning, as God, created all things. And everything he created, he looked at and said, it is good. He created man, and he said, it is very good. And now here he is, up close and personal, seeing the effects of sin, seeing the disastrous effects of sin and death in the world and it's hitting him personally, and he's upset by it to the point where he's angry. Here he is, and his good creation is broken. He's upset by it. This is the reason why he came, is to deal with this, to put an end to this stuff, and to heal what is broken. And so we must have this perspective on suffering and evil and things that are wrong, that God absolutely is opposed to it, that he doesn't like it, that he came in order to die to end it. But at the same time, There's another perspective that we must have on suffering that this text gives us here in Hebrews chapter 12, and that's this, that God uses, he actually uses the brokenness of this world in order to accomplish his purposes in the world and in our lives. See, doctors will tell you that in order to live a long, healthy life, you need to get regular exercise. You need to sweat. You need to go beyond what feels comfortable and what feels good. See, when you exercise, what are you doing? You're putting stress on yourself. You're putting stress on your body. You're giving yourself opposition, aren't you? And unless you do that, the doctors will tell you, you you cannot be healthy. And the same is true for other areas of life, right? Like your faith will never grow unless it's tested. You cannot become more patient unless your patience is pushed to its limit. You cannot become more compassionate unless you are put in uncomfortable situations. You will never become more courageous until you have to face your fears. If you never go through difficult things, you will end up a shallow and immature person. The other thing about exercise is that when you're doing it, you know, there's this thing where you feel like you're getting weaker and weaker, 
but in reality, that's when you're getting stronger, right? So if you lift weights, your muscles begin to feel like noodles, right? And you can't even do anything afterwards. You can't even lift a pencil. You can't even stand up to get in your car. You can barely lift anything. You feel so weak. But it's through that process that you actually get stronger. In the same way, when you are pushed to your limits, when your faith is tested, when your patience is tested, that's the way that you get stronger than you ever were before. And God wants to take your life. He wants to make you into something great. He wants to take you from where you are now and do great things in your life and through your life and the lives of other people. And oftentimes he uses the difficulties and the frustrations and the hardships in your life to accomplish those purposes. So let's talk about our second point where we move from a coach to a father, from a coach to a father. So starting in verse five of this text, the author suddenly changes metaphors. He stops talking about the stadium and he starts talking about the home. He stops talking about a coach and he starts talking about a father. Now, why would he do that? Well, here's what I think. I think it's because if you're not going through something, you're just thinking in theory, then yeah, it is helpful to think about God as a coach and a trainer. But when you're in the midst of something, when you are facing difficulty in your life, it's not very comforting to think of God as your coach and your trainer who's sending exercise into your life. But it is comforting to know that God is your father, your loving father who cares about you and he, who's committed to doing what's best for you. And what he's sending into your life is something which is called in Greek, which is here in the text, it's called paideia. Paideia, which is the word which in our Bibles is translated discipline. And discipline is just such a bummer of a word. Like who gets excited about discipline? Nobody. But this is an interesting word, paideia, because it's a little bit different than the way that we tend to think about discipline. So if, this is the Greek word from which we get our word, pediatrics. Pediatrics. Now think about what a pediatrician is. A pediatrician is a doctor who is concerned with the overall health and well-being of a child. And my kids have a great pediatrician. We love her. And, and my kids actually like going to see the pediatrician because they know that she cares about them and that everything she does, even if she pokes them with a needle, she's doing it in order to help them. She's not there to hurt them. She's there to help them. Now they don't like being poked with needles. Who does? But understand that the pedi they understand this. The pediatrician is not there to hurt them. She's not just hurting them for the sake because she doesn't care about them. No, she's doing everything she does for their good. And that's a really important perspective for us to have on God in this way because a lot of times when we think about discipline, we think of it in terms of punishment for something that we did wrong. And I want you to see that's not what's being talked about here. See, everyone understands that in order for a child to grow up and become a healthy, well-rounded, functional adult, they need to experience discipline. They need to experience instruction. Sometimes they need to be told no. Sometimes they need to face consequences. And, and they need to experience those things in a safe environment from people who genuinely care about them. And if they don't get that kind of loving instruction and discipline, then they won't grow up to be healthy people who are able to succeed in life. And we use this phrase in our culture. We talk about spoiling a child. Spoiling a child. And how do you do that? How do you spoil a child? The way that you spoil a child is by giving them everything they want and never allowing them to experience hardship. That's how you spoil a child, by giving them everything they want and never allowing them to experience hardship and difficulty. And here's the thing. If we believe that that's how you spoil a child, that's how you ruin a child, is by not letting them experience any hardship and by always giving them what they want. Because if you do that, what will happen? The child will grow up to maybe be lazy or to feel entitled or to lack humility or to lack empathy towards other people. And if they grow up to be those kinds of people, they will suffer for it in the end. 
That's why Proverbs chapter 13, it says, if you don't diligently and lovingly discipline your children, that's not, it's not more loving of you to withhold discipline. In the long run, it's, it's less loving to withhold discipline. But think about this. If we say that's the way that you spoil a child is by giving them everything they want and never allowing them to experience any kind of hardship. But think about that. Isn't that what so many of us expect from God? Isn't that what so many people expect from God? We want God to give us everything that we want and not let us experience any difficulty or hardship. And what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us here is this. Hey, if you think that that would be a bad method for you to parent your kids that way, well, then why would you ever think that God would, would parent you that way? And here's what you can rest assured of, though. And this is good news. That if you are God's kids, if you have become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you can be sure of this. God will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. God will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. He has perfect knowledge, right? He knows the future. He knows all situations and circumstances. And so sometimes that might include some things that are painful. Sometimes it might mean God saying no to our request or our prayer or the thing that we want or saying at least not right now. But you can rest assured that if you are his child, then he is absolutely committed to your best interest. See, this paideia, this idea of paideia, this loving parental discipline that's for healing. It's not, talk, it's not about payback. It's not about retribution. It's not vindictive. It's not, you know, done to hurt the child or shame the child. Rather, it is loving discipline that is done to shape and to correct and strengthen the child for the child's own good. And that's why the writer says in verses 9 and 10, he says, Earthly parents discipline their kids in a way that seems best to them, but God's discipline is always for our good. In other words, earthly parents sometimes miss the mark. Isn't that the truth? Sometimes, I know as parents, we react in anger. Sometimes we, we get short-tempered. We get uh, Im impatient with kids. Sometimes we make it about ourselves instead of about them and their good. But even where earthly parents have failed and fallen short, God doesn't. And maybe there are some of you, I know this is the case for a lot of people, you didn't have good parents, or maybe you had a bad relationship with your parents, or maybe your parents weren't around or they were checked out. Maybe they took out their frustrations on you. Maybe they were passive aggressive towards you. But I want you to know God isn't like that. He's not that kind of father. He's the true father. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message.
Sometimes people say, you know, I have trouble accepting this, that God is a father. I have trouble relating to that whole concept because I had just such a terrible relationship with my own father or my father just wasn't around. I didn't have a dad. I don't even know what that's like. If that's you, here's what I would encourage you in. I would encourage you to say this. You still have a picture in your mind of what a good father should be like, of what, of what an ideal father would be like. And I want you to know that's the kind of father that God is. He's the perfect father. He's always there. And he always acts in your best interest, even when he says no, even when he allows you to experience some kind of hardship. It's always because of his immeasurable, undying, unrelenting, unending love that he has for you. And in verse 10, it says this, that God does this for our good. Why? So that we might share in his holiness. So that we can share in his holiness. Can you see your difficulties and hardships in that way? as paideia, as this loving, healing, corrective discipline, as God's love in your life, bringing it into your life so that he can work things out for your ultimate good, so he can bring his glory and his goodness into your life. And that through that pain and that frustration that you experience, he's actually working in your life to remove the things that don't belong there, the foolishness and the idolatry and, and those bad characteristics that exist in your life so that instead you can share and you can grow in his holiness and more of his greatness and his glory. So you can see this at work, for example, like in the life of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, the life of Joseph. Now here's what happens. Joseph comes from a dysfunctional family where his dad had two wives and a bunch of kids and he played favorites. He played favorites with his wives. He favored the one wife over the other wife. And then he treated the one wife's kids better than he treated the other wife's kids. And Joseph was the favored one. He was the oldest son from the favored wife. And so uh, his dad treated his mom with favoritism. And then when his mom passed away, that favoritism switched to Joseph. And, and Joseph became the object of his favoritism. And, and as a result, Joseph was on his way to being a terrible person. A terrible person. Here's how you can know that. You can see it in the way that he talks to his brothers. So for example, Joseph had a dream one day that his brothers all bowed down before him. And so the next day he goes out and he tells them all about this dream and he's kind of gloating in their faces about this dream that, hey, even though I'm younger than you, dad made me the boss over you and you're all gonna bow down before me. And so it's no surprise that Joseph's brothers hated him. And the first chance they got when their dad wasn't around, they attacked him. They were gonna leave him for dead in the wilderness, but then they realized that they could actually make some money off of him, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And throughout his life, we see Joseph, after this point, experiencing just a series of incredible hardships, right? He's attacked, he's betrayed, he's lied about, he goes to jail. But through all of these things that Joseph went through, God actually used all of those things for Joseph's good and to accomplish his plans and purposes in the world. It was as if God brought the outward brokenness, the brokenness of the world into Joseph's life in just the right way so as to heal the inner brokenness that was inside of Joseph. So God brought the outer brokenness of the world, the lies, the hatred, the betrayal. He brought them into Joseph's life at just the right time, in just the right way, in just the right amount to address and to fix and to heal what was broken inside of Joseph, to drive out his arrogance, to destroy his pride, to get rid of his elitist attitude, and to make him into someone great, someone humble, someone who is compassionate, someone who is generous and forgiving and gracious and empathetic. And God used him then to save many, many lives. 
So at the end of it all, Joseph is able to say in Genesis chapter 50, he says, what you guys intended for evil, God intended it for good. You intended it for evil against me, but God intended it for good. And see, God does that same thing in our lives. He brings the brokenness of this world in contact with your life in just the right way, in just the right time, in just the right amount, so as to change and to address and to fix what is broken inside of us. And he does it for our good so that he, because he loves us, so we can experience his holiness, his glory, his greatness. And when you understand that, it changes your perspective on the things that happen in your lives. I often think about this. Think about Jesus' disciples on that day when Jesus is being crucified. And they see Jesus hanging on the cross. And what are they thinking? You've got to imagine, what, what must they have been thinking? They must have been thinking this. How could anything good ever come of that? Here he is, this man who came to save the world. And there he is being executed, being killed, nailed to a cross, his blood flowing, humiliated. They killed him, the Savior. They killed him. How could anything good ever come of that? There's no way. There's nothing good that could ever possibly come out of something this bad. Have you ever said that phrase over your own life? Something happens to you? I know I have. I've said that. How could anything good possibly come of this? How could, there's no way. There's no way that anything good could ever possibly come out of this. And yet, out of Jesus' death, did any good come out of that? Yeah, I'd say so, right? It was the greatest victory that the world has ever seen, the greatest victory in all of history. And here's the thing I want to tell you, is that if God could bring something good, something so good, something so incredibly wonderful out of something which at the time seemed to be so incredibly bad, then don't you think it's possible that he could bring something good out of whatever problem it is that you're facing right now too? I believe that he can. Let's talk about our last point, and that's this. Unspeakable joy unspeakable joy. Now, the question is this, how should we respond to difficulty and frustration in our lives? Here in Hebrews, we're told, first of all, how not to respond. Here's what we're not to do. We're not to give up on our faith and throw in the towel when things get hard. That, that's how many of us tend to respond to difficulty, isn't it? We, we say, you know what? This is hard, so I give up. That's what these people in this letter were doing. They had tried, but they said, you know what? This is really hard, so they quit. They stopped going to church. We read about that in chapter 10. They stopped going to church. They stopped seeking the Lord. They just quit because life was hard. And the writer's telling us, no, that is the wrong response. John Owen, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote a lot of other things. And one of the things that he wrote in another place was this. He, he did a lot of sailing. So he was a sailor. And here's what he said. He said, life is a lot like sailing. When a storm comes up, if you grab the wheel... You know, that thing that steers the ship. If you grab the wheel and you hold it steady, even though it might take everything you've got to hold on to that wheel and keep it going in the right direction, if you hold on with all of your might, then what will happen is that storm will actually help you get to your destination faster. It will actually move you to your destination faster because those storm winds and those waves, if you can hold on to that rudder with all of your might, it will get you to your destination faster. But if, on the other hand, in the midst of a storm, you just check out. You go down below deck and you hide from the storm and you say, you know what, I, I quit, at least for right now. What will happen? That storm will set you back, won't it? It will drive you off your course and it will set you way back from your destination further than you were before the storm came into your life. And isn't that a picture of how our lives go? And the key is this, in the midst of the storm, hold on to that rudder. 
Hold on to God. Don't let go. And he will use even that storm for your good and for his glory. And that's why the writer says in verse 12, knowing this, therefore, knowing that God loves you, that he's committed to you, that he's working all things together for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, he says, therefore, this, uh, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame might be healed. How can we know that God is working all things for ultimate good? Well, come back with me to the beginning of the chapter. It says in verse 2, here's how. By looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. And it says in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary. In other words, here's the deal. How can you know that God is absolutely for you? How can you be sure that he has your best interest in mind? Here's how. By looking to the cross, by looking to Jesus and considering what he did for you, the price that he paid, the suffering he endured for you on your behalf. It says that the reason Jesus did what he did is this. The reason he left the comfort and the security and the glory of heaven in order to come to our dusty planet and to walk our streets and be mocked and rejected and beaten and crucified. The reason he did it was because of the joy that was set before him. There was a joy that he wanted to take hold of, that he wanted to make his own. That's why he did it. Do you know what that joy was? You know what that joy was that motivated Jesus to do what he did? Think about it like this. What is the one thing that Jesus didn't have before he came to the earth? See, he already had everything, right? He had holiness. He had love. He had glory. He had the glory. He had the love. He had the holiness. Then what did he not have before he came to the earth? And the answer is you. Us. That's the one thing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit didn't have before Jesus came and died on that cross. And it was the joy that was set before him, that prospect of saving you and redeeming you and restoring you to relationship with him both now and for eternity. He had your face in his mind. That is what motivated him to face the horror of the cross, the prospect of the joy of taking hold of you and making you his own. And so Jesus came to us and he took the ultimate suffering so that we could experience the ultimate joy. The joy of being redeemed, the joy of being forgiven, the joy of being declared right with God. The joy of knowing that when this life is over, we will have eternal life with him. There will be no more pain and no more tears and no more death and no more suffering forever. So how do you get that joy? Simply, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. He received the judgment so you could receive the reward. He received death so that you could receive life. And for you to believe in the gospel means this, for you to trust it, for you to rely on it, for you to cling to it, for you to commit yourself to it. If you do that, if you trust in the gospel for your salvation, what Jesus did for you and who he is, then you can know that. You can have that joy both now and increasingly for all eternity. And if that's true, and friends, it is true, then you know what it makes you want to do? It makes you want to do what it says there in verse 1, to lay aside, to set aside any weight and sin and hindrance which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set before you, looking to Jesus with your eyes fixed on him. It means this, you want to say, you know what, I need to get rid of anything in my life that is hindering me from running full speed after him. And that means it's not just bad things, right? But it's anything which doesn't help you 
in pursuing him in a greater way. Whatever that might be in your life, maybe it's some kind of sin, maybe it's an inappropriate relationship, maybe it's some kind of addiction, or maybe it's something more subtle, something that's not necessarily bad. It's just not helpful. It's not helping you to pursue him wholeheartedly. Why would you want to run a race carrying a bunch of unnecessary stuff? It's time to let that stuff go and fix your eyes on Jesus and run wholeheartedly after him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. We thank you for your love for us. And Lord, this morning, we want to live with that kind of confidence that comes from looking to you and seeing how much you love us, how committed you are to us, and what you have done to save us. Lord, thank you that you are loving, that you are our loving Heavenly Father who brings that paideia, that healing, corrective instruction and discipline into our life even through difficulty and hardship. Lord, may we have that perspective as we go through the things that we go through. Lord, thank you that we can have that confidence. I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you and focused on you as we run this race that's set before us today and in this coming week. And we pray that in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.